1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, Jim Milstein on the lessons learned from the financial crisis. When the United States Treasury suddenly was thrust into bailing out private banks and auto companies in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, they called on Wall Street to help them figure it all out. Jim Milstein left his job at Lazard to become the chief restructuring officer of the United States, where he managed most notably AIG. Since leaving the government, Milstein has founded his own advisory firm, and he's currently teaching a course on the crisis at Georgetown Law. He joined the FT's Sajid Indap to talk about his career, the crisis, and whether the lessons from the crisis have been learned. Here it is.
0: Jim Milstein, welcome to AlphaChat. Happy to be here. So we're going to spend most of our time discussing the financial crisis, which is famously or infamously celebrating its 10-year anniversary this year. Before we go into that, let's start out with how you actually got into the restructuring world. Your dad is Ira Milstein, uh, one of the most important pioneers in the world of corporate governance thinking. Yes. And then you became a lawyer like him. Tell us about your path to becoming a restructuring uh, expert.
2: Well, it was accidental. I started my career at uh, Cleary Gottlieb and... After I finished my spate of pro bono work, somebody put their arm around me and said, you know, it's time for you to actually become a lawyer. So they assigned me to a big syndicated loan. So I did loan documents, as young associates do. And shortly after we closed the funding of the loan, the issuer defaulted. And uh, the banker for whom I worked called me and said, you know, we've got a problem. The loan we just funded is now uh, in default, and I need a bankruptcy lawyer. And I said, great, Cleary's a big firm. We'll find you a bankruptcy lawyer. And he said, well, it's a complicated deal. You know the deal. So why don't you take the bankruptcy code home and learn the bankruptcy code, and we'll do this together. So, you know, I just got lucky in the sense that it was one of the biggest bankruptcies of its time. In 1984, the company was Global Marine, a big offshore driller. They had done one of mike Milliken's first big high yield deal on top of a whole bunch of syndicated loans and being one of the largest bankruptcies of its time it attracted all of the best bankruptcy lawyers in the country and a young associate me <laughs> and so i got a first hand education in the bankruptcy law from really the best bankruptcy lawyers in the country i you know the case went on for two and a half years so i went in knowing nothing and came out pretty experienced bankruptcy lawyer
0: And so your fortuitous entree into bankruptcy was just at the moment that bankruptcy and restructuring became like a real thing in America. And so maybe for our listeners, explain what exactly a restructuring professional, whether it's a banker or a lawyer, is doing. Like, what is their role in in Uh, the process?
2: So the Bankruptcy Code was amended in 1978. I got out of law school in 1982. And the code was amended to fix the problems of the past and facilitate and make it easier or less burdensome for publicly traded companies to use the bankruptcy code as a means to restructure their indebtedness or their other obligations that prove to be too burdensome to service. So what a bankruptcy lawyer basically does is restructure a balance sheet, sometimes restructure the operations if the operating business itself is the source of the problem. But It depends on how complicated the balance sheet is, how complicated the restructuring of that balance sheet is. But basically, it's a process of right-sizing the debt and other obligations that um, have a claim on the company's cash flows to a level that the company can support and still fulfill its business mission in the world. So as to create margin for investment, employment, growth back out of the cash flows and reduce the debt to a level that can be serviced. You know, over the course of my career since 1984, when I first started in the bankruptcy world, the development of a secondary market. You know, the debt markets have completely changed over the last 40 years. When I started, it was primary creditors to a company were banks uh, and insurance companies. Now, you know, it's hedge funds, private equity funds, credit funds, CLOs, the whole range of institutional investors that now invest in special situations, invest in distress, and are there to provide liquidity to the original investors. So you still have banks making loans, and you still have insurance companies and pension funds through their various institutional money managers funding the debt of corporate America. But one of the big developments in the capital markets in the last 40 years is the development of a secondary market. That is where bank loans trade, So a bank that funds a loan can decide at any point in the course of the loan's life that it would prefer to redeploy its capital in some other sector or some other credit. And there's an active trading market in uh, bank loans. There's an active trading market now in bonds. And both uh, perfectly good solvent credits as well as distress credits. So the secondary market is a huge change in the capital markets and has had a huge change in the manner in which bankruptcies are conducted because instead of having people who are kicking themselves for having made a bad loan, most of them usually bail on the credit sometime before a default. And you've got the debt repriced at what the new buyer believes is fair market value. Uh, That tends to move around a little bit as the fortunes of the company change. But you've got, a, in effect, a willing investor who's investing in the reorganization as opposed to an investor who's licking his wounds.
0: And so that's a great uh, transition into uh, our discussion today on the financial crisis. You are teaching a course right now at Georgetown Law with Tim Assad, who's the former chairman of the CFTC. Yep. And you sent me the reading list for that, and it was interesting to see how you laid out, of course, into the financial crisis. Uh, The first section is on the financialization of America and the outsized growth of the financial services sector from the 80s until 2008. Maybe tell us what you were trying to uh, get your students to understand about the context for the financial crisis.
2: The revolution
0: in the capital markets that
2: occurred beginning really in 1980 was a factor in creating A huge expansion of the financial sector in the United States. You know, we went from bank-based funding of business investment to a system where you have a huge complex of institutional money managers. A significant factor in that is, as I said before, the growth of primary credit markets away from the banking system as well as the growth of these institutional money managers. The whole set of changes that occurred in the late 20th century that resulted in this brave new world that we find ourselves in. You know, Part of it was the creation of huge institutional pools of capital as a result of the extension in the post-war period of retirement benefits, which was really not part of the employment deal in the United States until uh, after the war. And so the growth of pension funds as institutional investors fueled a source of capital away from the banking system that spawned credit funds, distressed funds, private equity funds, all the people who were managing pension fund assets. So you had, you know, sort of three basic pools of capital in the United States. Insurance companies, which have been around, you know, for 200 years as managers of capital And banks have been around since the beginning of time. But then the growth of the pension funds has really created a completely new institutional framework in the United States. Throw on top of that the deregulatory push that started in 1980 where the complex of regulations that came out of the Great Depression when we had before 2008 the last great banking collapse – The result of the Great Depression was the creation of the FDIC, the creation of Fannie Mae, the empowerment of the Fed. You had a series of institutional innovations and regulatory constraints that were placed on the banking system to make it sounder and safer. But beginning in 1980, that whole Depression-era set of regulations began to be undone, in part because of the competition that was coming from the new institutional money managers, managing pension fund assets, and in part because the pendulum had swung and the banks were feeling uh, competitive pressures, and the uh, Congress responded to it. And so you freed the banking system, which had been separated off from the broker-dealers, from the investment banking system, by regulation. Slowly but surely, all of those regulatory barriers came down, Glass-Steagall was the popular shorthand term for all of that. But Glass-Steagall was really being eroded all through the 90s. And then finally, when Citibank and Travelers proposed to merge, the Fed approved it, remarkably enough, so they had a conditional approval, subject to Congress actually dismantling Glass-Steagall completely. So a fierce lobbying effort by the entire banking industry ensued, and Glass-Steagall finally came tumbling down. What that permitted, in effect, was the creation of these huge financial holding companies that held both investment banks, commercial banks, uh, insurance companies, and investment management arms. So today, if you look at, you know, uh, JP Morgan, for example, it is all of those things. It is sitting under one big holding company as a large regulated depository operating on a global basis a large broker-dealer operating on a global basis, a huge investment management operation, all under one roof.
0: And so you start that deregulatory push in the 1980s. The president at the time is a Republican who comes to office on a platform of free markets and deregulation. The 90s uh, ushers in the Clinton administration, who is a Democrat. And so there becomes this broad bipartisan philosophy in Washington that finance is a good thing and it promotes economic growth and we should take off the rain. So there really is a consensus between the two parties on what Wall Street should look like.
2: Yeah, both parties had a hand in the unwinding of the regulatory regime created during the Great Depression. But you can't emphasize enough the role of Alan Greenspan at the Fed. So you have the primary national banking regulator at the Federal Reserve, who's an Ayn Rand devotee, who believes in, you know, that markets are self-correcting and efficient and that the need for government regulation is really unnecessary. So Greenspan is a huge proponent uh, with great influence, Uh, you know, the maestro, who had commanded great respect on both sides of the aisle. You know, you look at the period of the 90s, the U.S., experienced a hiccup in uh, economic growth in the early period. But then, you know, the internet bubble was being blown and economic growth was in the 4% range, something that we look back on very jealously now. And so all was right with the world and this uh, push for deregulation had broad bipartisan support.
0: And there's that famous time cover, Community to Save the World, which is Greenspan,
2: Bob Rubin, and Larry Summers. Right. And starting with Don Reagan, who was a Maryland CEO and became the Treasury Secretary under Reagan. Beginning with Reagan, you had a succession of Treasury secretaries, including Bob Rubin, who came out of Wall Street. The government was captured by the street at the highest levels, and you had an economist at the Fed who you know, was very supportive of uh, deregulation and the idea that markets were self-correcting and efficient.
0: So if we fast forward to 2008, and uh, now we think where we were in April of 2008, so 10 years ago, that's one month after Bear falls and is absorbed by J.P. Morgan. At that time, did you sense that the worst had passed, or what was your thing? What do you recall about that pendency period between... Bayer and Lehman Lehman's trying to raise capital at the time while the other banks are trying to raise capital, but they're also minimizing the actual extent of uh, the danger.
2: At the time, I was at Lazard running the restructuring practice at Lazard and we had coming through our doors all the folks on the front end of the subprime crisis uh, or the subprime manufacturing machine, I should say. You know, the New Century Financial, the American Home Mortgage, these companies were failing first. And they failed in 2007 and early 2008. So um, at the time, by virtue of the kinds of companies that were coming in through our doors for help, it took me a little bit of time, but you started to see a pattern. And so I I spent a good deal of time in late 07 and early 08 trying to understand what had occurred that these companies were failing in droves. And just to summarize it very quickly, in two thousand there was $4.5 trillion of indebtedness on the housing stock of the United States. By the end of 2006, six years later, there was $11 trillion of indebtedness on the housing stock of the United States. So we, over the course of that six-year period, more than doubled the outstanding debt on the housing stock of the United States. The consequence of that widespread availability of mortgage credit was to drive housing prices up above their historical norm of 2 to 3% appreciation year over year if you go back 200 years residential um, housing prices in the United States you know pretty steadily increased with a couple of blips like the great depression but pretty steadily increased by 2 to 3% per annum it was a nice safe asset but during the early aughts it was going up by 10 to 15% per year and the subprime business which was itself a financial innovation. It was a new mortgage product that didn't depend on the ability of the borrower to repay, but it depended on house price appreciation, which, given what was going on, appeared to be a reasonably safe bet because house prices were appreciating sufficiently that you could make a 100% loan-to-value in 2001. And by 2003, there would be a 30% equity cushion by virtue of the house price appreciation. And the way those loans were structured um, basically gave the lender an option to refinance at the end of the teaser period on an interest-only mortgage so as to allow the borrower, if there had been house price appreciation, to refinance and take equity out, uh, cash out of the refinancing loan and allow the lender to collect prepayment premiums for early repayment of the loan and to write a new loan with much better collateral uh, coverage. So this innovation together with house price appreciation and you know balance of payments issues that had capital streaming into the United States looking for a home created a huge surge in mortgage availability and as a result mortgage indebtedness.
0: And who do you think is accountable for that innovation? What drove that – this was a Wall Street innovation. You know, there's a, big banks or entrepreneurs at these uh, subprime lenders who came into your doors in 2007? No,
2: the subprime lenders were – they were just the front end of a machine. They were funded with warehouse loans from the large banks. They would originate uh, these subprime loans uh, and then sell them to the big banks who would in turn pool them uh, into trusts and sell securities against the trust, so-called private label securitization. The numbers that I'm about to cite are more or less accurate. There was probably a $100 billion of originations of subprime private label securities in 2001. That grew to half a trillion by 2005. So a massive expansion of the availability of subprime credit. And it was largely done through the securitization process, an innovation that occurred in the 1980s. And the big banks always envied that franchise, and beginning in the late 90s and then exploding in the early aughts, the big banks found a competitive product that they could sell into the securitization markets, and they sold it all over the world. This proved to be a global crisis because the private label securities – as well as their offspring, the collateralized debt obligations and the CDO squareds and the asset-backed securitizations, uh, this was a business that boomed, and credit investors all over the world ended up owning pieces of this market. So that when house prices went into reverse, beginning in early 07, the whole financial engineering on the basis of which this subprime mortgage worked came undone because it depended on house price appreciation. So if house prices were no longer appreciating, then these 100% loan-to-value mortgages with teaser periods where you're paying only interest suddenly experienced uh, significant delinquencies and defaults because The whole design was not to depend on the borrower's ability to repay but depended on house price appreciation. So when house prices stopped appreciating in 06 and actually went into reverse in 07, you began to see a wave of distress occur. The first people to suffer were uh, the front end of the machine, the New Century Financials, American uh, home mortgage companies. But then the institutions that had loaded up on this stuff began to experience distress because, you know, and this was the other factor as a result of the deregulation, leverage constraints were relaxed. And so you had the investment banks levered 25 to 40 times. And just to stop there for a second, you know, if you're levered 25 times, you have four cents of equity for every dollar of indebtedness that you've incurred. If you're levered 40 times, you have, you know, two and a half cents of equity. If your book is highly skewed towards subprime uh, mortgages and their progeny, and that stuff is going into reverse from a price point of view, that leverage now comes back to bite you and erodes your equity cushion and begins to make your counterparties who are dealing with you nervous about your ability to repay them two cents or four cents of loss absorption just isn't enough. So a bank that holds mortgages in portfolio and is intends to hold them to maturity needs to take reserves. But an institution that has them on their trading book and is required to mark them to market, now suddenly the secondary market, which was this great place to offload risk, starts to become a place that is foisting risk upon you because as prices deteriorate, in your trading book, you're now being forced to mark them to market and take, you know, uh, a book loss. And that book loss on a quarterly basis is now being reported. And so you have this vicious cycle uh, in the same way that the virtuous cycle of house price appreciation creating equity to refinance and, and support greater indebtedness. The whole system goes in reverse as house prices depreciate. Creating mark to mark losses in trading books, reserves on hold to maturity portfolios on balance sheet, and suddenly institutions that are very highly levered are looking undercapitalized. Even more uh, relevant to the crisis itself. So, if you look at the composition of uh, the liabilities on the balance sheet to the big banks and the big broker dealers, investment banks, what You saw in 2006, 2007, were not only institutions that were levered, in the case of the regulated depositaries, you know, 20 to 25 times, in the case of the investment banks, 25 to 40 times, but the nature of their liabilities was heavily skewed to short-term debt. Sixty percent of the liability structure of these institutions were funding themselves in the short-term credit markets, the repo market, the commercial paper market, the securities lending markets, with uh, obligations that were due within less than a year. And so you had significant rollover risk, significant refinancing risk. And so as the losses from the housing market started to radiate through the secondary market, affecting the trading prices of these securities, you had a growing concern about the solvency of the major institutions in the United States by market participants. And it turned out that, you know, the balance sheets of a big bank and a big investment bank were relatively opaque. It was hard to know, uh, you know, remember the game of Old Maid. It was hard to know who was holding the Old Maid. A widespread suspicion in early 08 was that the Old Maid was hiding everywhere on every major bank's balance sheet, that they all had significant exposure either uh, directly uh, in holding CDOs, CDO squared, or ABS and PLS directly, but also indirectly through the derivatives market. The credit default swap market had also grown enormously during this period. And again, if you looked at the disclosure on any of the big bank and investment banks, quarterly and annual reports, you know, they would tell you the notional value of derivatives outstanding. But it was very hard to know whether they were long or short, and how much of it was related to having wrapped the senior tranche of a CDO. And so there was a growing unease with the solvency of these institutions. And you could see that it was pretty clear that all of the major institutions who had had a hand in the manufacturing of these securities, that the losses were likely saturating their balance sheets.
0: And so this recalls those horror show earnings conference calls during the summer uh, of 2008, notably Lehman Brothers. They sent Aaron Callan out there, the CFO at the time of of Lehman, to explain what was going on, Uh, and that did not assuage investors at all. And Lehman, of course, is an investment bank dependent on short-term financing, wholesale financing, Uh, And so that confidence of the market is central. Yeah.
2: You know, when your liability structure is skewed to short-term debt, when you're funding yourself primarily in the short-term credit markets, the refinancing and rollover risk, you, you depend on market confidence in your solvency. And as the market lost confidence in these institutions' solvency,
0: the refinancing risk came home to roost. So we get to September 2008 and the Lehman moment. That was about counterparty risk and then no one wants to actually do business with Lehman and therefore they, they have to go. Was it ultimately a solvency issue or a liquidity issue? How do you, how should we think about the actual yeah. demise of Lehman? For
2: institutions such as Lehman, an illiquidity event is a solvency event. Uh, because if you can't fund yourself and you're highly levered, if you can't refinance your debt as it's coming due, your only choice is to sell assets and you know, at that time, you're selling assets that are impaired. As the imbalance between sellers and buyers occurs, you have to discount your prices more and more. So you end up in this potential fire sale situation where a liquidity crisis turns into a solvency crisis because you have to keep lowering the price of what you have to raise cash to pay off your short-term debt. And that very small equity cushion that you have when you're levered 25 to 40 times rapidly disappears.
0: And so there's the idea of the question of whether Lehman should have been saved. But the question could also be asked, could it have been saved? Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure.
2: It could have been saved. Um, What would that look like? Well, it would have looked like AIG. It would have looked like what subsequently occurred. The problem, there was a technical problem with Lehman, which was that over the course of the weekend before it filed for bankruptcy on uh, September 15th of 2008, under the auspices of the New York Fed, a buyer was sought. And you had Barclays and B of A both doing as much due diligence as they could do in a in the short period of time before Lehman would be defaulting on its debt. And the information in diligence was um, developed, shared with the Fed, that suggested that Lehman was not solvent, that its commercial real estate book in particular was significantly impaired and that the book values were no longer realizable. And under the Fed's emergency lending authority, the statute only permits the Fed to lend to solvent institutions. And so having had some diligence done by a third-party institution that suggested that Lehman might not be solvent made it very difficult for the Fed under the statutory restrictions of its emergency lending program to actually make the kind of loan it made three days later to AIG.
0: Uh, So speaking of AIG, uh, you're in September 2008 at Lazard. You've been there almost 10 years. There's this crisis going on, but there is also a presidential election going on. And Obama wins. there's a transition a uh, treasury from Paulson to Geithner, uh, and you get a call. Uh, tell us about that.
2: I mean, I had had some conversations um, with people inside the Obama camp over the course of the summer, one of the president to be's inner circle, and I had worked on a big bankruptcy together. He was a lawyer and and when I was at Lazard and uh, I guess I had impressed him that I knew a little bit about the credit markets. And so in the summer of '08, as they were in the middle of the campaign, he called and asked me for some advice, for some insight into what was going on and to talk to some of the economists in the campaign. But the day after the election, I got a call from an old friend and uh, he said that uh, he was, you know, had just been appointed a co-head of the transition team at Treasury And uh, I might have noticed that the Paulson Treasury Department was doing a couple of workouts, and they really needed a workout expert. So um, after figuring out how to shed my own responsibilities at Lazard, I went down to Washington and spent most of November and December and January helping make sure that the baton was passed and not dropped between the Paulson Treasury Department and the Geithner
0: Treasury Department. And so you would eventually become the chief restructuring officer of the United States, which is a fantastic title. I hope you picked it out yourself. Uh, <laughs> but there's a there was a very specific philosophy about the Paulson approach and then Geithner uh, about actually pumping these institutions with capital, but not nationalizing them. Just taking preferred or stakes in them. But there was some thoughts about actually nationalizing these institutions, like City. Paul Krugman had been an advocate of that at the time what are the trade offs between the philosophy of letting these companies remain in the private sector but taking big stakes and overseeing them in a meaningful way versus actually just taking them over you know the question you have to ask about nationalization is
2: then what then what do you do with it you know if you're allowing it to survive and continuing operate in the ordinary course does government ownership is likely in this country whether you're a Democrat or Republican, there's no real ideological support for having the state be a massive player in the financial system. We don't have state-owned banks. At best, a nationalization was going to be a transitional state of affairs. The prejudice, uh, both in the Paulson Treasury Department and the Geithner Treasury Department, is that the capitalists know better how to run a financial institution than the government does. And so the way the bailouts were designed was both to refinance the short-term debt that these institutions could not refinance for themselves. And so you had a, a whole alphabet soup of emergency lending programs initiated by the Fed and the FDIC. And then ultimately, Congress passed the TARP legislation, which gave the Treasury Department $750 billion of firepower to Actually, re equitize these institutions to put equity behind the entire liability structure of the institutions and basically say, you know, the government is now at risk behind $18 trillion of debt provided on a short and long term basis by third party private parties. And that helped calm the crisis. But taking them over outright, sending all of the board members home and the managers home. You still had to go find competent people to run these institutions, right. right uh you weren't gonna you know pump
0: in a group of regulators and say, "Now you have at it so tell us about the experience of being in Washington between two thousand nine two thousand eleven. What did you enjoy about it what's what's interesting about that experience well, I mean. If
2: you asked uh, anybody walking on the street, probably if we walked into the newsroom here and asked, you know, any of the reporters, my guess is, is that most of them would say that the federal government lost money, that the bailout of the banking system cost the taxpayers enormous amounts of capital. When in fact, it's just not true. Every dime that the Fed, the FDIC, and the Treasury Department infused into these companies was repaid. And in fact, the taxpayers made a profit. But at the time, the public hostility to the bank bailouts was so great that it skewed public perception from the get-go and even to this day as to what the federal government did. So this was an incredibly effective set of programs in terms of stabilizing the financial system ultimately returning these institutions back to full private ownership, restoring credit intermediation. We didn't go through a Great Depression, which is what the alternative would have been. And we had the kind of, if we had stood back and said, you know what, you guys got yourselves into this mess, you're going to get yourselves out of this mess. If we had done that, we would have had massive bank failures across the country. The recession that occurred, which was painful and deep, but it was also very short compared to what occurred in the Great Depression. You know, Depression we didn't come out of the Great Depression until the end of the Great War. It was yeah. you know, a 15-year process. In the case of this government set of programs, we were out of the recession by the end of 2010. It was a two-year recession. We've had a very slow recovery, but just imagine the alternative. We have a perfect example uh, historical example in front of us, which was the Great Depression, when the Fed tightened credit mm-hmm. allowed massive bank failures across the country because of the ideological prejudices of the time. And as a result, the suffering by ordinary people was so much greater, you had 25% unemployment during the Great Depression for 10 years. So I think the unfortunate part of the programs was the Politics became so poisonous so quickly around the bailout. You know, you had the Tea Party come to power in the House in 2010, and they became obstructionist and they were riding a wave of public hostility to the bailouts. This was famously begun by a CNBC commentator who was complaining about the possibility, just the possibility, of mortgage relief programs. Uh, being rolled out to help ordinary Americans who were in default on their loans, there was a massively negative reaction on the right to the possibility of not just bailing out the financial institutions, but also bailing out homeowners, which led to you know the Tea Party revolution. But the politics became poisonous around the bailout, both from the right and the left. When I would go up and testify, there was hostility on both sides of the aisle to what we were doing and just a refusal to recognize that what we were doing was actually working and stabilizing the system.
0: So you stabilize the system. The U.S. banking sector has recovered. It's relatively sound, I think, is the consensus. And you look at the European banks, which went through a very painful period, much longer than the U.S., and that's another contrast. But two criticisms, uh, two prominent criticisms of that time are, one, the accountability of the Wall Street professionals who had created this mess. Should the Department of Justice, Eric Holder, Pete actually pursued criminal actions against bank executives. And the second was the idea that the Treasury Department, Geithner, Obama, perhaps were not as generous as they could have been with mortgage relief, homeowner relief. Do you have thoughts on, on those two? Yeah, I do. On the
2: prosecutions. No CEO of one of the major, 10 major institutions in the United States was, you know, hauled out in chains. But there were criminal prosecutions all over the mortgage complex. The cases against the senior executives of these large financial institutions, very hard to make criminal cases against them. The essence of the criminal law is that you have a bad intent. Cienter. Cienter. And if you're managing five levels above the trading desk or the securitization operation, what did you really know about uh, the possible malfeasance or negligence that was going on? But at the lower levels and across the complex of institutions that were engaged in the origination and distribution of uh, subprime mortgages, there were prosecutions all over the map where Cienter could be established, where people were knowingly defrauding investors or counterparties in the manufacturing process for these uh, mortgage securitizations as a former lawyer I'm sympathetic to the problem of criminal prosecution of senior executives of a mammoth banking institution where the senior executives are really you know four or five steps removed that said I think mistakes were made ethical mistakes were made political judgment mistakes were made by the senior executives. I think one of the great mistakes of the bailouts is that we didn't constrain as a matter of the TARP program in 08 and early 09, we didn't constrain the payment of bonuses with what was in effect taxpayer money. And at the end of 2008, some of the major financial institutions paid ridiculous bonuses in light of the fact that they were all completely dependent on the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury Department for capital and liquidity. And notwithstanding the fact that they may have shown book profits that might have in better times justified a bonus pool, it was just tone deaf to pay the kind of bonuses they did and that it provoked, and rightfully so in my view, uh, public outrage. And that was a fault both of the regulators and the design of these systems, the bailouts, as well as of the executives themselves. On the question of mortgage relief, this is really problematic. I mean, we ultimately did have the HARP and HAMP programs, which use some of the TARP money to facilitate the modification of mortgages so that people could stay in their homes and have a lower payment. But it took 20 years to create a mortgage securitization in the private label securities business, and it took us a year to stand these programs up. And so you had a huge lag between the delinquencies and defaults that were afflicting huge swaths of the American homeowner community and the time when the federal government actually got these programs, stood up. And remember, how do you interact with a a homeowner that has a bad mortgage or a mortgage it can't afford? You you interact through the banking system. And so we had to design a system – with uh, banks that could be rolled out to the 12 million mortgages that were delinquent or in default. It was a massive undertaking, uh, both to work with the banks to come up with systems that they could actually implement, and to design a program that wasn't going to create the kind of moral hazard that would lead people to default so as to take advantage of uh, the government largesse.
0: One thing ordinary Americans become also very cynical about is the the so-called revolving door, the idea that Wall Street professionals went to Washington to serve, had an experience there, and then came back to their institutions. It's particularly acute amongst lawyers, either the Department of Justice or SEC. The flip side of that is you need market expertise theoretically. I mean, they, you were brought on because you were an expert in in financial restructurings, and that kind of expertise just isn't a core function of Washington. What's the way you think about uh, the balance between private sector expertise, and then those same people taking that expertise and going back out to make money again. We, for better or for worse, in this
2: this United States of America, we have a partnership between the private sector and the public sector with regard to the management of the economy. You know, the Republicans and the Democrats would draw the line differently as to where the line between government regulation and uh, private sector activity occurs, But the nature of a modern economy is such that uh, both on the regulatory front and both in the organization and operation of the private sector, it's become quite complex. And you need expertise to make that relationship work. And the private sector is evolving and the government sector is catching up. So it's almost impossible for the government from the outside looking in to do an effective job of regulation without being able to tap private sector experts in all sorts of areas. You know, you can do it by holding colloquium and symposium and bring people in and do listening tours. But having people who are actually experienced in how the private sector has organized itself and operates is a pretty critical capacity that the government needs.
0: Does that directly or implicitly affect the actual public policy that is made For example, bankers will – the policies they they implement and advocate for could at least implicitly favor the interests of where they used to work. I think – look,
2: we're all victims of our own experience. And so you carry with you the biases and prejudices of the jobs and experiences you've had in the private sector. But there is something that occurs – when you take on a government job in which you kind of put on a government hat and you think more broadly and you may have biases based on your experience. You may have a too narrow a frame, but there are dedicated, talented, long-term officials inside the government who can call you out and keep you on the straight and narrow. So look, I think the best we're going to do on the revolving door issues is The rules of engagement when I was in the government were that you couldn't work on anything in the government that you had worked on in the previous two years in the private sector. So, in fact, I thought I was going to be doing uh, work on the uh, auto bailouts. But because I had represented the UAW in contract negotiations in 2005 and 2007, that was just within the two-year look-back rule. And so instead of working with Steve Ratner on the auto bailouts, you know, I became the chief restructuring officer and worked on things that I – had no prior experience with, but still called for my expertise as a restructuring person. I think there's got to equally be when you leave, Mm -hmm. you should also, and there are rules on this, ban for a year from coming back to the agency for which you worked and to lobby it or on anything that you worked on. Maybe that's got to be a longer ban in order to prevent the public perception that you're cashing in on your government service.
0: So, Jim, just thinking about where we are now in the banking and financial sector, we're in the late innings of a long expansion. Companies have taken advantage of benign credit conditions to lever up massively. Households, uh, which had delevered, are starting to lever up again. Uh, At the same time, we think about the actual financial institutions out there and how the sectors evolve. There still are these massive pools of capital out there, and they've organized themselves in private equity and these massive credit funds and shadow banks, if you will, which are somewhat less regulated. Banks themselves seem to be coming out of their funk. And we're seeing that with uh, the banking results uh, this week. Uh, how do you think about where the credit markets are and the banking sector is and how that feels different or similar to 10 years ago? Yeah, the statute site are right. I mean, the corporate sector is more levered relative
2: to GDP than it has been in American history. The household sector is you know, pretty much the same leverage it had going into the financial crisis. The financial sector is Less levered, better funded, less reliance on short-term debt. But, you know, it's still got a heavy reliance on short-term debt. I think the biggest risk in the environment, frankly, is interest rate risk. The Fed is trying to unwind its balance sheet. It's at the same time trying to raise the base rate. And given how levered the corporate sector is and how levered the federal government is, you know, the tax cuts – And the recent budget have the federal government borrowing trillion dollars a year now. So both the government and the corporate sector and the household sector is extremely interest rate sensitive, given how levered they all are. So I think the borrowing needs of the federal government, all other things being equal, should drive rates up. The Fed reducing its quantitative easing and now quantitative tightening should drive rates up because a buyer of last resort in the Treasury's market is withdrawing from the field. And at the same time, the Fed is trying to raise rates. So I think refinancing risk is very high. And the impact of higher interest rates on diverting cash flows of corporations and uh, savings of uh, households to greater debt service and less consumption and less investment could have a very negative effect on the economy. I think that's the big risk out there.
0: Is that systemic risk or is that just going to be a standard economic contraction? How do you think
2: about that? Again, I think that the regulated financial sector is better capitalized and has better liquidity management. You never know what's hiding. You know, Ben Bernanke in 2005 thought the subprime crisis was contained in a very small part of the economy. So what will be a trigger this time to... The erosion of uh, the prices of an important asset class on bank balance sheets, I don't know. But that's the risk is in a highly levered economy, which is what we've got, how interest rate risk radiates out through the system and turns liquidity into solvency crises, you know,
0: stay tuned. And so what I want to close with is uh, the class you're teaching and your students. They're – probably in their mid-20s. And so the financial crisis for them was something they experienced as middle school or high school students. How do they think about Wall Street and elites and the people who brought about the system? They go to Georgetown Law, they're going to be in this elite sector. What was their experience of the financial crisis and how do they think about this professional world that they're going to be a part of? You know,
2: I think memories are short in the capital market. So the kids who are now trading... These debt securities probably are not much older than my students, and uh, if they had a memory, it's a very faint memory of what the crisis was about. And these students, this was all really new to them, the guts of what we're teaching, because as you say, they were in middle school at the time. This is where institutional memory, having an experienced group of regulators who've been around and through And an experienced group of managers uh, in the corporate sector and in the financial sector who have been in and through and remember is important. And this is the problem with the generations that memory is short and the study of history is often ignored.
0: Interesting. Okay. Jim Milstein, thank you for joining us.
1: That's the end of this week's episode. Thanks to Dasha Lissitzina for editing this interview, and thanks to you, our listeners. We'll see you next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.